Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview has been tape recorded. I'm Paul Leary and this is XJob Downloaded. And today we're going to interview Paul Nichols. Now, Paul Nichols served with Essex Police. He has got the QPM. He was a dog handler and he's had an extraordinary life within the police service. And since leaving, his big battle now is with Parkinson. Good morning, Paul. All right. All right. right. (laughs) Understated as ever. Um, Paul, it's it's interesting, and I say this every time because I've I've picked on a load of mates to do this to start off with, and our history goes back quite a way because in 1979 I used to deliver newspapers to your grandfather in Great Bromley, but before that, your grandfather Stan was my dad's sergeant in Essex Police. How about that then? I never knew that. I never knew you lived in Bromley. I never knew you used to lift, uh, deliver papers to the older. Uh... The old grand pop's uh, flat. I never knew that, mate. Yeah, you? no, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? And, um, yeah, so our, our paths crossed, and then, of course, we joined the police around a similar time, and we worked in different places. Now, you started at Harlow, didn't you? Mm-hmm. But initially, you went to Ashford Police Training School. Shotley was mine. You went to Shotley, I did, did you? yeah. I was on parade there, and I, we had the frost on our helmets, and people were falling all over the place. And In fact, I remember... Uh, one of the things I remember about shortly, I don't know if you remember it as well, Paul, you used to have to creases in your, in your tunics. That's right, yeah. And I got a bit over-enthusiastic one day, and I burned a hole in my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd get this thing repaired, so I'd like one tunic to last me, oh, was it 12 weeks or something, Shotley? I went to, to Ashford, so you must have been one of the first lot to go to Shotley, because they, um, they, they sort of specialised in Ashford to start off with, and or say start off with for many years, and then they sent people over to Ashford over to Shotley quite late on. But so you went to Harlow from there. You but you're a, a Chelmsford boy, boy so you, <laughs> you 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 grew up around there. What was that like when you first went to to Harlow? Because that is a it was a great place to work for me. It was for me as well, but it was it was real eye opening. I was like a, a very very young, just turned twenty. I was I joined I was turned twenty in November. I was joined in December, so I was a really young boy. And I think I remember you saying recently, Paul, on one of the other podcasts about how I'm turned to domestics, and I'm like this this kid basically trying to sort out thirty year marriages, and it's yeah. like a joke, really. Yeah. But what a place we had the old ski slope there. So at night times to get the old kitchen trays out and hazard ourselves down the <laughs> ski slope. <laughs> and yeah, Gilby's there as well, didn't you? At the time, the old gin people and it was Harlow's a very interesting place to work and you had some interesting characters what was the highlight of working there other than going down the ski slope on a on a tray uh I think one another funny thing we had was that was the uh the era of the uh, raves at the warehouses empty warehouses and things and um but I'm sure Simon won't be won't want me telling the story so me and Simon are on uh, point duty, you'd call it, or guard duty, this empty warehouse, drugs everywhere, right? So they've got this, uh, one of these chairs and sitting on there with the wheels. Yeah, the yeah. Glasses, flat floor. So you imagine what happened next, can't you? So me and you are, me and you are pushing each other across this, this floor, and in comes the chief. It's screeching with laughter. As we're flying across the floors, and oh, it's, it's going to fly past him. Is that... Um... John Bunyard, then. It probably was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It probably was, then. So it's things like that, you know, and it's, it's a bit like Simon and Jason, and it, yeah, I'm still pals with it now, so. Yeah, it's some, good. Some, some good. Some good times. The, the, the camaraderie was different, and I know we spoke about it earlier on. The, the, the fact is that they had canteens in the police stations. Yeah. The police stations were open 24 hours a day. I mean, now they're open till five o'clock in the evening. Uh, you had to go to burglaries. There was none of this death-based investigation. And the, and the, the policing has changed, some for good, some for bad, in the past 36 years, which is what we're talking about, isn't it, or 37 mm. years now. <clears throat> Where did you go to from Harlow? Well, I right, culture shop. So I'm going from the big city of Harlow to uh, Halstead. 
Houston. How did that come about then? Well, I lived in Chelmsford, so I wanted to get a bit closer to home. So I asked for Braintree, and they said, oh, <laughs> so in those days, you had uh, what was called repeater sets. So you, the way the car, the radio worked from the car, rather than like the, the old digital radio. Yeah. So that was a real eye to working out there. Because you work in, you, I mean, at Harlow, you get like one map with all the streets on it out there. You get a book with yes. all the villages in it. To, how to no sat-navs. No, 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 nothing like that at all. So I went from uh, there to Houseford, um uh, and then back to eventually got to Braintree. We had a really good time. I, lo- I love working Braintree. I love to work. Good fun, Braintree. good fun, Braintree. Uh, yeah, so from Braintree, uh, then uh, came that, um, I can't remember what year it was now, we had redeployment where all the people were getting shoved uh, west because there were shortage of people. So yeah. I thought I was being posted to Loughton, uh, but managed to get to Brentwood. Joy Brentwood, that's a great place to work as yeah, well. It is, yeah. And then on to my, to, 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 to my first love of dogs. So when when we were at Braintree, were you there at the old police station or the new police station? New one. The new one, yeah. I mean, that was, we had a bar, there were parties there, and it was work hard and play hard. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, we had we had a real laugh. And I know we were talking earlier on about the, the, the upper floor at the, the new police station, as we call it, and there would be races around the, around the top floor because you could open all the doors. And I, I vividly remember Taff Phillips being in a, in the shopping trolley at Jackie Cheers leaving, do I think it was, and being pushed around the around the top floor in a race, and yeah. Right in fact, there. in fact, we used to have bicycle races because it was a perfect shape, wasn't it? You yeah. <laughs> Proper the doors up, and you went in the side. We used to Tom, so it was like a fantastic time. Yeah. yeah, it was very very puerile, but it was good fun, and like I say, everybody enjoyed it, and, and nobody got killed in the uh, in the in the in the fun part. So your love of dogs, I mean, you, you're. It's well documented that your love of dogs, but how did that all start for you? Because there's a massive process to go through to to get onto the dog section. Well, just take back a few years when I was uh, probably fourteen or fifteen. I was walking a uh, chance with Broomfield one. I saw this this dog van go hurtling past. I think it was the old Escort vans then. Yeah. I saw and I saw the dog bobbing about in the back, just the head. <laughs> and for some reason, that was it. That was what I wanted to do. So basically, I joined the police to become a dog handler. Is that right? Yes. But um, yeah, the, the process is uh, it's a long process. It took me 13 years to go on. Three failed attempts because I was just rubbish at interviews. Wow. So it, but it's just something I was desperate to do. So after 13 years, that was it. Best day of my life. Phone and, call, you in. And so what, what, what happens then? You, you go through a selection process, and where do you go and how do you get paired up with your dog? My first, um, my first dog was a dog called uh, Sabre, or Mr. Sibs, as everybody affectionately called him. But uh, uh, we went down to Surrey, and I'd got Sabre beforehand. He'd come from a, a rescue home uh, come, what was up near Brimwood Way, Willingale Way, maybe. Okay. And the, and the sort of it's a standing joke. The, the woman used to say to us, "How, how we've got some dogs. How would you do? How would you want your dog to be?" Eighteen months. There you go. He could have been five or six years old for all we know. But uh, so I got poor Mr. Sibs, who grew up with his sister in a in a gypsy's car. Abandoned car, so the poor old boy was abandoned. He should never have been a police dog in his life. Oh, he was as soft as anything. But he was my first dog, and your first dog should, yeah, your biggest love. Yeah, so I had Mr. Sibson until unfortunately he left, and then and then and then the sort of process goes on each time you get allocated a dog. So yeah, so my first course was at Surrey, so I loved that. Down there for twelve. I can't remember, 10, 12 weeks, something like that. And what do they cover from there? I mean, what, what aspects of... Because people see a police dog, and nine times out of ten, and we'll come on to this later on, but nine times out of ten, they'll see a police dog in a van mm-hmm. or they'll see a police dog at a public order incident, a football match, something like that. They very rarely get to see the working police dog with all the other bits that it does. What, what sort of areas would you have done on your training? Well, it's anything. It's tracking people, uh, missing people, tracking burglars, looking for stolen property. Uh, it's like searching buildings, um, searching countryside for missing people or, or suspects. And then you could obviously then you then you diversify a little bit. Then you've got the dogs, the dogs that do firearms, the dogs that do different different sorts of skill sets. But predominantly, it's, uh, the basis are the circuit searching for people or property in, in a nutshell. That's, that's what they do. Right, because they're they're so so clever. I mean, they they just and. But they are part of your family, aren't yep. they? And if anything happens to your dog, it, it, you really do take it personally, and right, rightfully so. And I know that there have been a number of tragedies where where dogs have been involved in incidents, and the, and the whole force feel it. You know, it's not it's not just the dog section. When a dog gets injured or killed, 
everybody feels it. And it's, you know, but we love our animals, don't we, in, in the UK? Almost, it's, 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 it's quite strange, almost more than when an officer gets injured or hurt, you know? Yeah. The, the outpouring of grief for uh, sentiment, if you like, was is more for a, yeah. for a, for a dog. It's strange, yeah. isn't it? It is strange, but I, but I get it. I mean, I'm yeah. a dog lover, as you know, and uh, I absolutely adore those those dogs. And and that was, and we had German Shepherds. My dad was a dog handler in the army before he joined the police. Really? Yeah, they were different type of dogs then. <laughs> they were... They were, uh, you know, proper um, attack dogs, I suppose. I don't know what you'd call them, anything else. But, um, but yeah, so you, you've, you've done your 12 weeks. Where did you go to from, once you've, once you've got your ticket, because you have to be certified, don't you, as a dog? Licenses, of course, Licensed. Yeah. Once you've got your licence, where did you go? Uh, Sandon. So I started watching Sandon for it, and that was that suit down the ground, because obviously a Chelsea boy, I knew, I knew all the roads. I only had to get to every. I didn't have to look at a map, so it was perfect for me. And then they then they started to put us out to the hub. So then I went to Braintree for a little while, and then we came back to to Sandon. Yeah, yeah. Um, 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 when you were on there, what types of? I mean, before we move on to specialists, what what types of incidents did you attend? Was it a bit? It was a busy lifestyle, I would imagine, because there's so few police dogs. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it was an issue. You have to bear in mind that although we have a police dog, we were still dealing with all the actual general policing work. So we're still going to to burglaries if you like doing the burglary yeah. and domestics and things, as well as the other uh, all the other dogs uh, work as well. So it was it was really busy. But I, I mean, latterly I had a, a dog called Fidget. It was a little bitch, and she had a fantastic nose. And I remember one particular job where a guy got missing from uh, Bruford Hospital, and it was really cold, really snowing there. Really worried about him, and she must have tracked. I think we tracked that. Two two and a half hours. Eventually, we found this. We got to this garden, and she goes under, under this tree and looks up and she's barking up the top of the tree. And luckily, the guy hadn't done anything other than it was stood, stood on the branch, and he popped. He jumped off the branch, scared, wow. scared the life out of her. He scared the life out of her. Uh, yeah, so it just goes show how incredible their um, their noses, their sense of smell is. Yeah. And with with the general police dog, they're, they're a great pacifier. They're a great tool to to bring people under control. Mm. And when they don't get brought under control. They get brought down and brought in, into control. And I remember Graham Lent watching one of his dogs go across um, a marketplace and take this guy straight off of his feet. Bless him, old Graham. But um, but yeah, I mean they're, they're a brilliant tool, and I I still say it. I think that every police station should have one, at least one. Every shift should have one, uh, just to work for them in those their key areas. You look at here, Braintree Division. The old Braintree division is as big as Bedfordshire, but didn't have yeah. a permanent dock no. section or a, or a, a forensics uh, support team. Seems a crime, you know. That just didn't make sense. And now they they haven't got a custody suite here. What? Yeah, that's I understand. There's no custody suite <laughs> at Braintree, so everyone gets taken to Chelmsford or Colchester. So there's massive abstractions mm. there now. When you had your your dogs, how many dogs were you working at a time? To start off, just the one. And then you can apply for a specialist dog. That then you then you work in two at a time. So then you can perhaps get a drugs dog or a weapons dog or an explosive dog or a frenzy dog. And you obviously you've got your shepherd as well. So right. That made it interesting because because the the diversity of the work you're doing. So um, yeah. So sort of you just got the one. Then you then you hopefully if you want to you go on to two. And what what did you what specialist dog did you have? So the first dog blessing was my uh, drugs dog called Archie. So he was a weapons recovery dog. Uh, he would try to find uh, all sorts of weapons and cash, uh, dollars, sterling, and euros, uh, and uh, and also all sorts of drugs. So I had Archie, and then I got what's called a a, a passive uh, passive drug dog, dog dogs that search people, like festivals, things like that, or at airports. So uh, they like scan the air around people. So uh, we would work V, and that was just ridiculous. Just like Shell MPs, we'd walk, we just stood in the entrance, and, and we'd have like a like a, a team of people working, like two transits full of PCs. And I'd kid you not, within half an hour, the, the vans are full, and we'd go and sit in the van for half an hour while they had to clear clear them, get processed, and get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the V festival. There's 170,000 people go through there at a weekend, or did. Um, and everybody would get to meet a police officer of, of some sort. In fact, they're probably more likely to meet a copper there than they would be in their own homes yep. if yep. they lived in a town of 170,000 people. So how do you train a dog to sniff out cash or sniff out guns? I mean, drugs, I suppose it's all the same sort of working process, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, some people think that you actually feed the, 
the drugs to the dog, so they understand how it smells or tastes. But that's not how it works. No, <laughs> I don't think it's very, it's very fair to the dogs either. So what you, what basically what we used to do is to put 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 the drugs out, and because it was all the cash, because it was an alien smell to the dog. As soon as the dog would stop and, and look at investigate that that new smell, then we'd reward it with a clicker or a drop drop the ball of the toy on them. Right. So they then began to associate that smell with their reward. Right, okay. So basically, when they, when they were working, they, they were obviously looking for the stuff just only to get their, their toy, their favourite thing in the world, you know? Yeah. So that that's how we did it. It wasn't any, anything more uh, complicated than that, basically. Just an alien smell, the, the dog gets rewarded, and away you go. But you make it sound as if it just happens overnight. Not every dog is capable of, of being trained to that to that level. There are some failures in, in, in the dog world. Yeah. And... The yeah, you know, I've seen it where they've just thrown the ball and the dog's distracted in a heartbeat and it goes after the ball. You know that the person's carrying drugs. How does that feel when when you know? Because when we stop people, people will say, "No, I haven't got anything on me, mate." And the dog indicates. How does that make? How did, I know it made me feel, but how did that make you feel? Well, the good about dogs is you, I just say that to people. Like, the dog doesn't profile people. We do. Yeah. You look at people and you think, right? You won't have drugs on you. You will have drugs on you, and then that person walks past. You think you have drugs, and the dog does nothing. Yeah. So that's that's the beauty about dogs is that they never profile anybody. So uh, when I, I worked up at um, Harry's one day, and uh, we was uh, t- just turned out for a walk to Skipper, we just talked to his lad. lad his lad walked up to us, funny enough, and and uh, Charlie, funny enough, his name was drug dog called Charlie. Right. He got a, got a white moustache. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> So he stopped and he's looking at this kid's pocket. I said to the kid, look, what's in it? Oh, nothing, mate. I said, the dog can't lie. He doesn't have to lie. What's in your pocket? And oh, hey, it takes out a bit of cannabis, you know. So it seems like that. You just think you have to learn to just trust your dog, basically. Yeah. But it was like a fantastic feeling when that happened. And what was the most exciting um, thing that you found, I mean, during during all the deployments? Uh, one job we went to uh, with Archie, funny enough. Um, it was... Uh, in Romford, because really, they hadn't got any drug stocks in the area for the time. It was like years and years ago. And uh, it was a, what was it? I think it was a, one of those places where they were filming adult films. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. There was no adult films. You'd have to talk me through it, mate. I've never seen any. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, can you go and search his Bentley in the, in the, in the, uh, in the drive? Okay, in the, in the, in the, search in the back. And he stops in, gets in his, ba- in his bag, uh, opened up. It was like so much money. I'd never seen so much money in my life. Really? Yeah, it was like pff, oh, half a meal, something like that. And the guys, the Met said, right, he said, we've got to get rid of this bag really quick because otherwise we're going to get robbed of it. They're going to come and nick the money off us, hold us up to get rid of his money. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that, that was, that was, that was, that was quite good. It's, it's, it's funny how much cash there is still out there, even now. I know that's a few years ago, but even now there's, there's still a few quid. When a dog fails, what happens to that dog ordinarily? When, it, when a dog is no longer fit for purpose... That sounds awful, but when a dog doesn't pass a course, what do the what do the police service do with those dogs? Well, there's a there's a there's a there's a waiting list for people who want police dogs. Is there? Yeah, we had, used to have a book. I'm sure it was a book. Even in the kennels or at the office, where you used to have people would would, would ring up saying, "If you ever get any dogs that don't make it, we'd we'd take them off your hands." Really? Oh, whether cool. it be a specialist dog or a shepherd. But sometimes you get the handlers would would would, would want to keep them anyway. So uh, yeah. there's a, there's a, there was there's a process of yeah. vetting, make sure the house is all right for the people to have the dog and things like that. Like the RSPCA do, but uh, no. And contrary to to um, some trolls, police dogs are so well loved and so well looked after. And I've been in a in a car when on a blue light run with a dog handler, and I think the dog was enjoying it as much as you know. You're travelling a hundred miles an hour plus, and the dog is absolutely loving it. I mean, you, we couldn't hear the radio because the dog knew where, that we were on our way to something. When you think, I mean, I used to liken it to like they're, they're they are like elite elite athletes, aren't they? So yeah, they, they, they get the best food, they get the best exercise, get the best training, get the best veterinary fees, they get the best uh, everything. So they're, yeah. they're like, if, if if the dog isn't working, then he's useless, isn't he? So we need to make sure the dogs are in tip top condition all the time. So they're like elite athletes, and that's how they looked after as well. And working when you came over to work at Braintree because you knew that area as well. It's very very rural, so I. And this is a massive assumption, but I assume that the, the tracking element was probably more difficult simply because of the expanse of ground that you were trying to cover. What was what was that like when you would go from here to Great Chesterford, which is like forty minutes away? To be honest with you, I, I mean, I just used to love the opportunity to get to get 
her out of the dog out just to get her working. I didn't get I didn't get where I worked or what I did, but that was that was my passion was 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 tracking because it was such a good skill for the dog to have and yeah. and uh, and there's there was there was like two types of tracking. There's the tracking where the person walks across a field or, or a ground. So that that's called the ground disturbance. Then you got the then you got the sort of scent in the air they leave. Yeah, right. So that was more my uh, interest was like trying to find out a bit more about how people left scent on because. People walk through walk through an area and they and they and they and they simply get caught on bits of tree or a bit of grass or something. They call it rafts. The rafts are skin on someone's head or their or their face. So that that was my passion. I went I went to Finland to learn more about that to learn more about how the dogs would work and about how we could um, increase the the chance of catching someone. Finland. Mm. And he's, he's still a good friend of mine now. A guy called Ilka Homala. Uh, what was that like going to going to? Uh... Another country. I take it you, you didn't take your dog with you. Cold. Cold. <laughs> <laughs> but I know. I mean, I mean, you know, a dog handler's a dog handler, isn't it? You know, if you're sitting in a sauna in Finland and you have your clothes on, you're all just dog handlers all together, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but they was. Uh, I mean, he was taking uh, like scent work to, to like, a different level. He was talking about um, like it, it, they'd like they'd like worked on the system where like a, it was like a scent lineup. So they 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 put like the, uh, the scent of a, of a suspect against other six, uh, six other people, and then, then they show the dog a hammer, for instance, the, ha- the suspect a touch, and the dog would go along the line and he'd pick out the person that was. Uh, wow, that was incredible, and it was proven tested tested for a court purpose. So that was actually used in court some of these cases. How as cool well. is that? Did you get to travel a lot with um, doing your research? We went to Swindon. 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 Sweden. <laughs> we went and saw a, a dog psychologist over there. And if you know anything about people, people have like like chill child psychologists got the worst best worst behaved kids in the world, don't they? Yeah. This guy got the worst behaved dog. Oh really? <laughs> he'd be trying to mount your leg and barking at you and biting <laughs> you and all sorts. And he'd be like saying, "Get out! Get out! Stop doing that!" <laughs> <laughs> it's like a mechanic never fixes his own car. Yeah. The the process of um, dog handling within the within the British police is there a standard that everybody adheres to, or do different forces have different adherence? No, it's an act power approved uh, course. It is so everyone's licensed to the same standard. Everyone right. across the country, uh, uh, yeah, everyone is uh, the same standard. So there's certain criteria you have to meet as a, as a team, not just the dog, but it's the handler as well. So you're assessed and licensed as a team. So that, wow. that, that's that, that's across the board. Everyone has to do the same thing. Oh, and, and San, I don't even know if Sandin's still in, in place. Um, have they still got kennels yeah. over there? Still got kennels. As far as I'm aware, yeah. Yeah. Where did it go to from there then, Paul? Because you, you've done your, your general police duties with your dog, you've got your, your um, specialist recovery dog, etc. What What happens next for Paul Nichols? Well, the next, next dog I had was a, was a dog called a, a forensic recovery dog. So a dog that works at murder scenes, uh, it's like a body recovery dog. So if you had like a car crash or a plane crash, they'd send this dog in to try and... Wow. And also they was used using to um, locate people that were drowned right. as well. So I had this terrorist of a dog called Ludo, who uh, who we who we got uh, from a family in Frinton, actually, and he was an awesome dog. Yeah, so he was... Uh, I've been away and researched, I looked at all this stuff about how the Americans used their dog to try and find people in the water and this and that. So he was the first dog to be used in the southeast. Right, and what breed was he? He was a cocker. So we was, we had to... Because of mutual aid, we had to be... The vets had to call us as well because they hadn't got one. Really? So That, that they must had, hurt. <laughs> so they had to use us. We used in Kent, Suffolk, Norfolk, <laughs> and Essex and Hertfordshire, I think. Yeah, so uh, we, we we had a good time with him. He was a good dog. And what, what sort of cases did you did you work on? Any interesting that you can talk about? Mm, yeah, so the, the first one, our first job was a missing person down in Grayson, that's where I live now. And uh, the guy got missing over the Christmas period, missing for about 10 days. They said, just can you come down and search this area of waste ground, make sure he's not there. So I got him out searching this area of waste ground and they kept pulling me down to this, this flooded ditch. I didn't know what was in there. There was no no marks on the side to indicate anybody had fallen through down into there. I looked across to the field if there's any horses or anything there wasn't. So I said to the guys, look, I've not been working working him long. This is what he's doing. You know, you might want to put the divers in that bit, see what's in there. 
So the next day I was busy searching somewhere else and I get the phone call, yeah, we found the, the poor chap who's in the bottom of this this this, this flooded ditch, yeah. yeah. And that was it. He and that's was, where he'd been indicating. Yeah, and that was us, that, and, that, and that was us made in there. It was like the next best thing since our special when we after that. I bet you were. And, and did you get to go and work in the other forces then? Yeah, yeah, we worked in uh, Kent for a missing person. We worked in uh, Lucian, I think, for a, for a woman missing for years and years and years. Eventually they found her skeleton, uh, like a dirt pile in the garden. It wasn't actually indicated to it, but just like a case like that, just uh, some really interesting stuff with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, and they're another force to be reckoned with because as the police tactics evolve, so your DNA, your CCTV, your, your dogs, you, we're closing the doors for active criminals. The problem I foresee is that it becomes a reliance on some of these te- mm. tactics and techniques and therefore they don't encompass what, they've, what we did previously. You know, your house to house is too much reliance on, on the modern tactics. But that said, it's it's a brilliant part of the armory. Where did you where did you go to from there? Because you've obviously you, you, you took part in the, the dog trials. I don't mean at a court, but you thankfully. took <laughs> thankfully. But you but you took part in the dog trials. Um Yeah, you won that, didn't you? You won the dog trials? Yeah, with Fidget, yeah, my little my little girl Fidget. Uh but by then, I mean, I mean, the um, the Parkinson's was already starting to take hold of me. Was it? it? Look, looking back now, the way I was shuffling around, I remember uh, Mark Baldwin saying to me, "Look, what's wrong with you? Because you're shuffling all the time. You, you know, my speech would get worse. My writing was bad. So, and it, it, it stress affects you. So, uh, we we won the fourth trial. We went we went through the regional trials, right? Which is like a, just like a step up, really, if we get the nationals. And uh, um, but it wasn't down to her, really, but it was just my nerves really in the day and affected me and. We sort of crashed and burned a little bit, but I was just proud of her for the fact that we actually done something I wanted to do. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd won the force trials and I won the tracking trophy, albeit the day we did the tracking, we did it in snow, which is a bit unfair, really, because it's... There is a little bit, there's footprints <laughs> <It> in was... <laughs> I said to the side, I said, look, not be funny, but this ain't fair, is it? Don't, just, you just got to do it. <laughs> but I, can, I don't need the dog, I can it see was... <laughs> when, when. So when do you think you started... Getting the the Simpsons for Parkinson's. Uh, probably about then. I would say, Paul. Uh, when was it? A couple of years before I was diagnosed, at least. Okay. Because I, I remember. The, um, and you're a young man. Let's let's face yeah. it. You're how old are you now? You're fifty five. Fifty five. So you're a young bloke to to be getting Parkinson's. Yeah. So obviously I was, I was still in the dog section. I was struggling a little bit, and uh, eventually uh, uh, Jamie Abbott said to me, "Look, Paul." It's just like, it's just ridiculous. I'm going to take you out now. I'm going to go out and have a look at you, see what you like. And it's one of those uh, awful moments. So uh, I was struggling with it, every, struggling, right? So we get in the car to go somewhere and I couldn't put the seatbelt in. Oh, God. Bing, bing, bing. They excruciate about a minute of that. Yeah. <laughs> he said, for Christ's sake, give us it here. So I knew then that was it. That was it. And that's you said, Paul, so that's, that's it. So... I think it's probably a relief more than anything. So I, I spent uh, a year or so in the office sorting out, I don't know, f- uh, displays and things like that before the FMO said, that's it, you're done. Did you go before you're 30? Or yeah, did you, a year before. Did you? And, I mean, you were a very proud police officer of that, there is no doubt. And you did some great stuff. I, me- I remember you looking for the missing person out, out this way, um, the lad that went missing and you know you'd go out and, and do your stuff but before you left I mean you you made some remarkable changes for the police service and you always championed the the, the police dog that was that was your ultimate aim to make sure that, that you got the, the right, right recognition but so what did you do in order to impact on other people's viewpoint of, of having dogs uh, so one of the things you did was I wanted to improve the, the, the way we train the dogs I wanted to. I wanted the dogs to have to do things because they wanted to, rather than because they had to do things. Yeah. So me and my friend Dave Hibbert, uh, who's up in the West Midlands now, uh, he's only ah, oh, so only he's a civilian dog trainer, but he's a fantastic dog trainer. We set up what's called Impact, which is the first ever uh, police dog training uh, conference and seminar in Birmingham. We had speakers coming from America and all sorts of places, attended by dog owners from everywhere. Unfortunately, it was curtailed because of, because of COVID. So that was just one thing that um, we did to try and improve the standard of training. Yeah. 
Are you going to try and reinstate that? Is that a, a plan or is that, uh, I mean, given the circumstances around your Parkinson's, that's quite a lot to take on as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, obviously, I'm sure Dave would like to, but that's down to him really, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that, that was that was a real, a real good thing because you've got people in this room. In fact, Ilka came over, Ilka Homola came over from Finland for that as well. Right. Uh, so with people in the room from all over the country, all, all sort of walks of life. It wasn't just police dog, dog handlers. So it was just trying to get people to understand what we what made us tickle a bit more as well. Fascinating. You, I think you've undersold yourself, if I'm honest with you, mate, because you actually got the QPM for your work with with your, your police dogs, and to get the Queen's Police Medal, King's Police Medal, as it is now, I accept that there are some people that will be put up for it because they're thoroughly nice people and they're um, they're pals of somebody else. But actually, you're you're not like that. You've never sat in anybody's club. You got it through your hard work and tenacity. It was a culmination of everything that you've done. So you you know your your body recovery dogs and. But what was that like when you got told that you were getting the QPM? Well, I've been. Um... Because the process is, that I think you have to get recommended by uh, Chief Constable. The report, the report goes to the Chief Constable. Then he has to put it through to the PCC and it gets recommended. Then it goes up to wherever it goes up to the Buckingham, Buckingham Palace, I suppose. And then, so then you get you get the. the, the, the funny enough, I had a, I had a, I was living somewhere else at the time. I think before the current address, and I had this um, missed pass come through. So like someone, someone let come through, saying got this rigid letter. But he didn't think I was in, so I was running there after the post and chasing the postman. Going back with his letter, opened it. First thing he sees, Buckingham Palace, and uh, we're proud to know she'd been ordered the QPM. So then, obviously, the old media circus starts, doesn't it? But you can't tell anyone to no. start off with, can you? No, no, no. So you can't tell anyone at all. But let's. Oh, I told uh, Jamie it was my skipper, and Brad had put me in for it. So I told him because I was just so excited. The lovely Brad Dickel. Yeah. Yeah, he's super. Bad, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that, that was that, and uh, and then the, and then the day comes around, and you go to to Buckingham Palace, and I was really fortunate to get uh, Her Majesty to present mine, and uh, I was at the same time as Sir Mo Farah got his his award. And like did they his. talk to you? Did the other recipients talk to you? Or were they all pretty much in their own little? Well, I, t- I talked to Mo. I, I don't think he appreciated what I was. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Greg go. Oh well, Greg told him, and he's like, look at me, he's like, who the because I, I was I was just in civilian. I wasn't in yeah, yeah. And so he was like, who the bloody hell are you? Yeah, so we went there and uh, I met my machine. I had a good chat with her and told her about the memorial and stuff I was working on and uh, thoroughly bent to her about what I was doing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it is, and, you know, we've, we've, we've got the king now, but we absolutely adored the queen. And uh, you, But you worked hard for it, mate. So yeah. let's talk about the police memorial. What does that, what does that mean and how does that work? Uh, right, so... Um, my first, my first, when I lost my first dog, I was at my sister's wedding. Uh, in fact, I'd because uh, we've got kennels, so when we were away for on holiday the day, got the kennels where the girls look after the dogs all the time, make sure right. they're fed and watered. Yeah, yeah. So I said, I took the, the, the dog to the vets the previous night. I said, look, so the vet not very happy with what he's he's looking like. He looked like he got like a you tapped his stomach. He like, felt like a drum, you know. Yeah. He said, ah, it's all right. It's going to be wrong with him at all. So the next day I said to the girls, look, please, uh, can you take it? If he's not improved, please take him back to the vets. Uh, and then I got the, the dreaded call from um, Graham, bless him. Graham Lant, bless him. Yeah. My, my good pal, Kieran, said, I'm going to start with laughing in a minute. No, it's all right. Don't, do, you want, do you want any tissues? Kieran, Kieran took to the vets. And Graham, met, Graham ran me at my sister's wedding and I was like, I'm so sorry, Paul. I said, what do you mean you're so sorry about? What? What have you done? Oh. He said, uh, well, there's nothing we can do. They opened up and he was just riddled with cancer. Mm. You got me going now, you muppet. <laughs> so he said, so he said the kind of thing we can do is just like put him to sleep, which is what they did. So I managed to hold it together until I got in the car and my wife, she's now Jane, was driving and I just I just broke down. She had yeah. to pull over. I just couldn't control myself. I was just bawling my eyes out. Yeah. Got back home. And here's a funny story coming up. Got back home and Kieran had left his collar in the kitchen for me, so that broke me down again. Oh. So that was that. Good day. old Kieran Dow. It's not like it's not like him to put his size twelves in it, is it? The next day is my mum and dad's wedding anniversary, so we're back over oh. again to Bromley. Yeah, I come home. Archie had wriggled through a little gap in the in the patio doors I left and eaten all the sabers uh, tablets. Oh no! So I had to rush into the vet to get his stuff pumped. 
Get out. She's done pumped out. Oh. He was all right. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so I'd lost Arch, I lost Saber, and my basically my world had come crashing down with too much. That's the first dog I'd ever lost. Yeah. I was heartbroken. I didn't have to cope with it. Yeah. So eventually, uh, time goes on, and I looked around and trying to find a way to remember him. And in, in this country, there's a little tiny plaque at the National Arboretum which says, uh, based to the service of police dogs, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, we could do better than that, surely. I looked around America, got some fantastic statues. And there's one in Aust- particularly in Australia, which is fantastic as well. So I thought, oh, we must do better than that. So I, met, I got talking to a met dog handler called uh, Mandy Chapman. Oh, yeah, he's got below. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So Mandy said, uh, I know someone who might be to help us. I know John Doubleday, who's a sculptor, an artist. Dan is in uh, Molden. I, uh, I walk past his house, I'll have a chat with him. So John, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, he's got some cracking stories. Uh, he says, uh, yeah, I'll do it for you, I'd love to do it for you. So then we start the process of raising money. So I raised 65 grand, I think it was in the end. Wow. Uh, and you've got this uh, statue, unfortunately, it's of me, uh, one of Mandy's dogs, and of uh, the terrorist. So we had this um, this statue made, and it's at Oakland's Park. Yeah. Where I actually where she managed to put on an exhibition as well, with about police dogs and their and their lives and service. So yes, yeah, so that's the first one in in the UK. There's one in Scotland now. Is there? This is the second one. Yeah. So that that, that was the first. Uh, Oh, that's fantastic, mate. Yeah, of course you was there, weren't you? I was there. I was watching the car park. I'd retired by then, <laughs> so I, I could... And because you had um, Dame Cressida Dick yeah. came along, who was very, very nice, and she, you know, she absolutely loved it there. You had the PCC. You had all the, you had all the dignitaries, and then you had Simon and myself. I think Tim did some car park duties Stokes, as well, didn't he? Stoker. So, yeah, it was it was good day. Good day, mate. My brother turned up in all his finery in his, his red and white City of London outfit. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And, uh, yeah, so, but prior to that, I started, um, because I wanted dogs to get recognised when they retired. Yeah. Because at the moment, before I did anything, there was nothing at all. So I thought, this can't be rather. So I I had a medal minted. This is is in Essex, basically. I was working with the fantastic Linda Belgrove. Yes. And her retired police dog. Oh, what a great job she does. She's, they're incredible people. And she was the first, I'm going to just bring you back in a second, but they were the first... Charity to look after police dogs, weren't they? They were quite. They, Lancashire was the first. Lancashire were the first, but they were, you know, they've brought it all together. And there's other people that claim to be everything for all dogs, but actually they're not. The, the Linda and and the team and the Lancashire team, they don't take a penny out of any of this. So all, anybody, all volunteers, all volunteers. So you've got other organisations that are taking money for membership, and then they're profiting out of it basically. So sorry, mate. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so I had these medals minted, uh, and uh, with Linda's help, we had the first ceremony. And uh, in fact, it was it was a good ceremony actually. It was in front of the uh, the big house on the on the lawn there. Oh, brilliant! Fantastic. And all when the, you say the, the big house, it's the police headquarters. Sorry. Uh, Essex Police Headquarters. That's all right. <laughs> and, but... and like a big house, like a big big house, something we just chose as <laughs> random. <laughs> the big house is our old headquarters building, isn't it? So yeah. So we had the chief council come along, Mr. Uh, Stephen Kavanagh. Yeah, he did the presentations with the PCC and Mr. and Lord Peter and all this sort of Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. That was incredible. So that was that. Uh, actually we actually were planning on the next one in April, hopefully. And so now I also do a, a medal for, like a national medal, for nationally for dogs that were tar or killed in service, something right. like that. Yeah, so we do that as well now, which is um, which is busy. And we've also got a roll of honour on our website where dogs that are, are killed in service or retired, we, we put them on the website as well. We have like a dog of the day. Uh, so any dogs that pass, they're 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 put on put on the social platforms as well. Yeah, I, I see it on on Twitter, and there's mm. some great you, you do some great work. I mean, there's some, I mean, obviously in the research, I've 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 heard of some uh, fantastic heroism of dogs. I mean, sort of too like vivid to sort of talk about now. But some of the stories of the heroism of the handlers of the dogs is beyond. Oh yeah, beyond beyond what we can we can think of. Really, they're just incredible. Really, I saw one the other day on social media where. Um, this guy's the, the the cops trying to pacify somebody, and he punches the the dog. The dog's not out of the vehicle at the time, and he punches the officer in the face. And the officer does no more. He gets the the boot of the car open, gets the dog just brings this bloke down, and he severely wishes he hadn't punched <laughs> that police officer in the face, and rightfully so. You know, absolutely, that dog t- took grave offence at his handler being being attacked. But like I say, every shift needs to have. 
a, have a Paul Nichols and a, a, a Sabre standing there because... Well, perhaps not a Sabre, but something, something, yeah, yeah, something but, yeah. a bit more suitable for dog blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you, but you <laughs> know what I'm saying. Some fluffy old pet, yeah, yeah. But, um, so, the memorial, it's in Oakland's Park, so people can go down yeah. there and see it, and it's, it is fantastic, and it was a, a great day, as, as I say, and every dignitary's been there. What's what's happening now, Paul? I mean, you you're, your police it still runs through you. Your dad was a cop. I remember I remember meeting your dad. Right, your your dad was a DC at Chelmsford, and he was in charge of all the files. And oh, I, oh he's driving a desk, was he? Oh, he was. And I got called over there because I had to see him. And I think Roy Burnett had told me that I was meeting the DCI. <laughs> And I, my backside was going half crown sixpence. I thought, I was, oh, he might as well have been the DCI because all I met was this grumpy bloke who seemed old at the time uh, telling me what I had and what I hadn't done right in this particular file. But he was, he was a great, great guy, your dad, and I'm glad to hear that they're, um, they're kicking along nicely. But as I say, you've got policing like, like I have. You've got policing in, in the blood. What happens now then, Paul? Where, where are we at? So 2014... Uh after various, uh, I said I was getting slower in it, so I went to see my doctor, and he referred me to a neurologist, and uh, after a five-minute consultation, uh, where the guy doesn't even look me in the eye, he says, you've got Parkinson's. I said to him, what? He said, you know, I, got, I can tell that from seeing me for five minutes. That's just impossible. No, you got Parkinson's. He didn't look me in the eye when he said it. Didn't he? So I thought, that's it. The first thought coming to him was poor old Muhammad Ali trying to like that flame with his shaky hand, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, that's what I'll be like. So uh, I just I, I just couldn't accept it. So I found it per my skipper Neil Finnis. I said I was in tears. I said, oh, God, God. I said he said don't worry. I said just it's fine. We'll deal with it. We work with it. So I come in and eventually I saw the FMO and the FMO said look I don't care what you've got if you're fit to work you're fit to work. So but then I I, I disputed the the, the diagnosis. I said, look I haven't got it. So then I saw a second uh, neurologist uh, who's a really nice chap actually, and he said you haven't got it. I said well what have I got? He said oh, anxiety or stress. He said take you off the meds. So you get on. So I was all right, I was still working before, before the bing, 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 dang. But then my symptoms again was I couldn't do my shoes, I couldn't turn the key in the ignition, I couldn't do a tie up. Uh, so then uh, I went for what's called a DAT scan, where they put some um, some fluid into, into your brain to try and find out what's going on. And then I saw the, and then the consultant room, he said, I'm so sorry, Paul, I said, you got Parkinson's. I was relieved that I could start some treatment, you know? Yeah. So basically, there's, there's two areas in here that head that look like tadpoles, and mum, uh, they're supposed to be bright. The little tails, and mum are like just just the body, like dull as anything, you know. Right. So he said ah, that was in 2014. He said he said I think he's probably for about 10 years, if honest. Wow. Yeah. So the trouble with Parkinson's, they they still don't know what causes it. I mean, I had a really bad car accident in 2006 where I was hit by a car. Right. I was, well, I was almost killed. I was hit by balls of the car, massive fractures in my face. So perhaps that, that's it. They just don't know what it is. It could be genetic, it could be anything. So, yeah, so anyway, so um, I get diagnosed and I basically shut myself away from everybody. I was just really embarrassed about how I felt and I just didn't want to do anything. I didn't see my friends for a year, a year or so. Uh, obviously my family knew, but that's the trouble with Parkinson's. A lot of people don't don't want to admit it for some no. I don't know what it is, really. Uh, yeah, but then uh, sort of, you know, you start to come out and you think, you're right, how, how can I, what, what can I do now to try and do with what I've got? So were you on medication? Mm, not much. So it was almost, I was almost coping with, with what I had. But then a lot of, my, I mean, one of my things with Parkinson's is you get obsessive behaviour. So my first obsessive behaviour was ping pong. Really? Uh, yeah, playing ping pong. I, I, don't, I don't play since I was a kid. But I thought, oh, I quite like the, quite like the idea of ping pong. So I started playing, I joined a club in um, Ipswich somewhere. Then I got, I got to speak to a guy called Gary Lees, who's now a very good friend. He's got Parkinson's as well. We, uh, and uh, me, Gary, and another guy called Andy Cassie, we've, uh, we've founded the first ever national ping pong championship in the UK. Wow. At St. Neats. There's people from all over the country come to it. I don't know, it must be 30, 40 people there. Oh, of course, yeah. So that, that, that was that we, we, uh, we, we, we uh, set up. But in the meantime, I was I was also I just started playing football. Because um, you were a good footballer, weren't you? I mean, you 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 played um, in goal. You you did you you played for the force and you were a good goalkeeper. Yeah, I was uh, I was at Ipswich for a little while as well on their books. But anyway. I thought you were a good goalkeeper. 
<laughs> How old were you when you were at Ipswich? Five. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> 13 or 14. Anyway. Excellent. So I started playing walking football and uh, what I found, Paul, for that hour I was playing, I mean, at the time I hadn't told any of my, my, my mates at Colstra, I was I got PD. Uh, so for that hour I found, I was uh, I felt free of Parkinson's. I could move around. Occasionally I couldn't move my legs, so I just said, guys, I just pulled the muscles and I just stopped playing if my legs stopped working. So then I thought, well, if that, if that can have that effect on me, surely other people can have that effect on other people with Parkinson's. Yeah. So by then I'd already been involved with the uh, what's called the Undefeatable programme on TV, like a national campaign. Right. We are undefeatable. And I met uh, Stuart Langworthy, who's the over-60s uh, walking football manager, England football. So I got talking to him, I just explained to him what I was doing, he was playing goal, and we got talking. And then I met my, my, my superhero guy called John Roach, who lives in Liverpool. Right. Who also got Parkinson's. Uh, John is my inspiration. Uh, John um, set up a, a tinkle Northern Lights up there. Like people with Parkinson's, they do like football, they like pantos, they dance, and all sorts of stuff. So we, uh, two years ago, we had one one team, one hub in the country. Now we've got 14, I think, in the country we've oh, set up. Oh, brilliant. Uh, we had a day at tournaments in George's Park last year, attended by over 100 people with Parkinson's, the biggest tournament in the world ever held like that. Uh, and then we've got an England team, which I'm, I'm a member of the over 55, so I'm now an England international. Wow. At the age of 55. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> I think it's brilliant, mate. And we, and we played at Belfast uh, last year for our first international game. We went to Belfast, played over there. So the game's, the game's absolutely massive. So as John was saying, we've still got people in dark corners crushed by the way of Parkinson's. Of course. So our mission is to try and get those people out of the, uh, out of the dark corners and feel part of the family yeah. and the team just getting playing football and exercising because exercise is a big, big help for people. Yeah. It's, I, it, I, it's brilliant and your motivation is absolutely second to none. And I laugh because, mate, to put yourself out there at our, our tender age, to actually do these things, it, it just shows your commitment to Parkinson's and what we'll be doing at the end of um, this We'll be putting in in the body all the links, all your Twitter feeds, everything that you do. We'll put that on our on our page so that people can reach out to you. And if there's fundraising and people want to support you, then they'll know where they, they've got to go to. Thank you. But it's but it's hard work, you know. Every day's a challenge. Oh, I know. Yeah, I can. Well, I say no. I can only imagine, mate. Putting your putting your socks on. I remember you posting a video where you were literally struggling to walk down down the corridor at your you know your previous previous home. And you have dark days, don't you? Of course you do. There's days where, you know, you, you, you thought, well, you know, perhaps it's time to have the one-way ticket to Zurich, you know, things like that. But, uh, but then again, you think, well, tomorrow's another day, isn't it? So you get through that day and then today's another day. But, uh, you know, every day is a struggle. Boy. Every, day, every day is a struggle, I tell you. People with Parkinson's, I've met some incredible, incredible people who are battling Parkinson's. Perhaps some people, some people, I mean, we had some guys up in um, Liverpool, me and John were, were doing a session there, and he came in walking... Two walking sticks, and he could hardly move. Paul. By the end of the session, he got really sticks, and he was all right—not all right, but he was moving a lot free. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some people in some dark, dark corners. You know, there's some really, it's a really horrible condition. Oh yeah, and like you say, I can imagine that you get that feeling. You want that one-way ticket to zero. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. It's interesting because you worked with medical dogs as well. Now, was that since or or whilst you were in the police service? So, whilst I was with the, still working the dogs, I was uh, I was. Become aware of the medical t- detection dogs, dogs that train dogs to detect cancer. Right. I was really interested why they train the dogs. How yeah. you could train a dog to find such a uh, a tiny odor, if you like. Yeah. So once I was diagnosed, I obviously did a re- research, and I was uh, I'd heard about this woman called Joy in uh, Scotland who could smell Parkinson's on people. In fact, some days I could I could smell it myself. It's like a musty smell, you know. Is that right? Mm. Perhaps just yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So I'm thinking, surely if we can smell it, dogs can smell it. It's something so strong. So I went to the um, the guys there and I spoke to the CEO, one called Claire Guest, who right. founded it. I said to her, this is what I'm thinking, what do you think? She said, we'll give it a go. So they did a trial and it's, uh, dogs are now trained, first ever dogs trained to detect Parkinson's in the world. Now, I don't know how far that study's got because I think the, the sort of uh, medical people or the pharmaceutical people, they want to have this, what's called an electronic nose like a machine that detects it, which uh, I, I don't think is as effective as the dogs. So there's like a bit of a battle there to decide. Yeah. 
where that's going. But it's, again, it's another clever, fantastic use of, of such a sensitive nose. Hmm. When you um, when you're in the police, of course, you qualified as a sports therapist. So you not only were you taking part in your golf, your football, and everything else, you're also doing. I remember, I remember once I'd done my back, and you were giving me a sports massage in the custody suite at when? about ten o'clock at night. It was where. Down in the doctor's room at Braintree Nick. Really? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Maybe it wasn't you. But anyway, <laughs> no, no, it was you. It was you, Paul. It was, it was you. And I, and obviously that's not something you do now, your sports therapy, or do you still practice? Uh, I, I, I still, I'm still interested in it, yeah. You co-founded um, a, a number of different things, but you, your love has moved into art, hasn't it? I mean, you... you and I'm very grateful, and I will put this picture up. You've just presented to me a fantastic painting. Now, you've been displayed at the Oxo, Oxo Tower, Oxo Gallery. In London, yeah, there's yeah. a, a Parkinson's exhibition up there, and uh, uh, I was lucky enough to be out there at the same time as a guy called Alex Echo. I think it's Alex Echo, who's quite a famous artist. You try and look at his work, it's fantastic. Yeah, so there's a guy called Trevor. Trevor, um, he, he, he's family of Parkinson's. Like another fantastic someone with Parkinson's was driving and ambition and whatever. Yeah. So Trevor's got this exhibition, this this space at the Oxford Gallery, and um, I've got this painting, the painting of the beach house I've got up there, and I've got this mannequin I've painted as well. And uh, uh, much to my wife's delight, I was interviewed by uh, the sort of bit of hot, hot reporter from IT, and I thought it was name is, so she was happy with that as well. <laughs> Yeah, so like, it's like it's a bit, a bit like a bit like Forrest Gump sometimes, you know. You know, Forrest Gump. Oh, I play ping pong, so I did this, and I sort of do darts, I did do it at this. I play football, so I play for England, and it's like, it's like it's more like surreal, you know, all these things I'm doing now. But you're not going to give up, are you, Paul? Nah, you yeah. can't, you can't, you can't give up. No, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a good saying. Like, I have I Parkinson's doesn't have me. I have Parkinson's, you yeah. know. And when I was first diagnosed, they said it could be life limiting, and my 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 stock phrase that is what well, depends where you see your limits. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, uh, yeah. And you, so you, but you've had some radical surgery, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, which has improved your quality of life. Yeah. I know we spoke earlier about the, the dark times and literally banging your head against a, a brick wall because the frustration. That's not, that's not figurative. That's literally out of yeah. frustration. Yeah. Do you mind talking us through what the, what the, they did, what the procedure was? Yeah, I mean, how I mean, how graphic do you want me to be? You'd be as graphic as you like. If you're <laughs> listening to this, it is quite graphic, but it does give you a clue as to the, the procedures that people go through in order to maintain a good quality of life. So it's called uh, DPS, deep brain sti- stimulation or stimulus. I can't remember what it's called now. Yeah, so basically the idea is that um, this they, they put some electrodes into your head to stop the bad signals. Of Parkinson's, so I went out to Queens, and then I mean, I mean, hero is a really underrated, underused words for surgeons and doctors. Yeah, more used for footballers and stuff. But in my mind, these guys are incredible. I mean, yeah. Mr. Lau and Dr. Mr. Boon, uh, they've basically saved my life, Paul. They really have. So you, you go in and you have that this 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 cage fitted around your head under an anaesthetic. Uh, so you take that to, to, to uh, then they do an MRI, make sure they get. The, the cage in the spot. So the idea is the cage is because they're going to drill a hole in your head, two holes in your head. Right. And just make sure, obviously, it's, it's quite accurate. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's quite important. Yeah, so um, actually get, get back a little bit to, to start going for a consultation and uh, obviously Mr Lau is a funny old chap and uh, he's like, like, he's trousered up, he's having his sleeves run up and he's doing his notes and he says, do you have to shave your head? I was like, you tend to piss. Yeah, for those listening, Paul and I are both follically challenged, so there was no need to shave his, his head. Yeah, so anyway, so you get you go out, you get, you get this 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 frame fit dread and um I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm asleep and they, and they bring me to and I obviously know what's going on next. So they bring me to and the reason why you you're awake and you're asleep is because they need to make sure you're off your drugs and then they when they put the actual uh, procedure into your head they know they hit the right spot. Uh so they I'm I'm just coming to and they and they start they start drilling. Uh, and and the, you don't have any anaesthetic because apparently there's no nerve endings in the head. Is there not? No, apparently not. So they drill into your cranium. So you feel it go, it's like a pop. Yeah. And then you can, it's, uh, then they put the electrodes in your head and you can hear the squeaking as this, as this thing's passed down into your brain. <laughs> I mean, I mean the guys, the guys trying to hit a target a millimetre wide, blind, blindfolded basically. Uh, 
and then so so then they then they turn it on slightly just to make sure it's all working. You have to do a series of tests like the finger tap, uh, and you have to say certain words and things like that. And then they put you out again, and they put this um, like a power pack into your into your chest, which powers the whole thing. It's like a rechargeable thing, right? Uh, so you have to recharge it every, every week or so. Oh, do you? Yeah. You plug it into a USB. That was just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you put. <laughs> You put like a plate on the plate thing. on it. Oh, yeah. like you're charging your mobile phone sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, that's it. It's charged every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> but the trouble is though, they they got they got settings. Right. So they can turn you up, turn you down. Fine tune it. Yeah. Uh yeah, so that, I mean that's that's just the procedure that they do now. It's incredible really what they do. And and how did that make you feel after you've gone through the procedure? Uh once it's turned on, it's almost like a release. They almost like give your body, your life back to you. Right. And it's gone like, well, that's gone 360, basically. I mean, there's no way that I could do the things now that I, could, I did then when I was first diagnosed because I was going to get worse and worse and worse and the depression was getting worse and worse and mm. worse. But now, you know, you used to have dark days. Still, okay, I think it's just the, just the nature of the beast, unfortunately. Uh, but no, it's just it's transformed my life completely. You, I mean, you've got a great network, and I know you keep in, in contact with some of our former colleagues and people that you joined the job with. So, you know, there's a lot of people you can turn to, but you've also done your stint as a Sam- Samaritan's call taker, haven't you? You've, you've done... Yes. You're right, I have. Uh, I think it was... Uh, Dra, my wife, has said that she was working with someone who, who'd, who'd trained as a, as a listening volunteer, so I thought, oh, I'll give that a go now. See what that's like. So I went for the training, and it's 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 quite rigorous rigorous training. Yeah. I think I think because obviously my previous job, you become a bit uh, uh, used to dealing with death, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people in special situations, and uh, yeah, so it's very much about how you feel about this, how you feel about that. So so I did that. I just couldn't believe how busy they are. Oh really? The phone does not stop ringing from the moment you get into the moment you go home. No way. I think it's three or four hour stints. So it could be. Five in the morning, six in the morning. The phone does not stop ringing. Really? Honestly. Uh, and I, I was unfortunate to lose a couple of people on, on the calls. Really? Yeah. Uh, That's hard. Well, you say that, Paul, but I think because of our job, we just become hardened. Yeah, to do that. I think you're right. I think we have that. We have that sort of almost. We have that humour. That we block. Have that, almost. We, yeah, we do. We have that emotional block. But their, but their, their networking of dealing with that is really good. People ring up and say, you know, had, what happened? How do you feel about it? Because you know, talk straight yeah. away about That was nice. But the trouble is they got to the stage where I just couldn't concentrate and talk to people for that length of time. If you talk to someone on, the, on a phone call for an hour and you've got to concentrate on it, it's for so hard, it's exhausting, you know? Yeah. And I just, I just, just could I wasn't able to do it anymore, so I had to fortunately had to Nothing knock on the head. Well, before we conclude this interview, I have got a question of you. And you explained to me earlier on about the difference between the sight of a dog and the smell of a dog compared to a human. Oh, what that analogy? Yeah, what was it? What, what, what was it? It's a, it's a fascinating fact. So let me get this right. So I think the analogy is, if you analogise uh, their sense of smell to our sight, what we can see at a third of a mile, they can see at 3,000 miles. That's incredible. So that just gives you an idea of how much um, better this is. I think that there's another one. It's a... They can detect one spot of blood in a swimming-sized pool of water. It's absolutely, it's incredible. And we see our pets, and no wonder they look at me a little bit old-fashioned. But <laughs> I was just, I was just in awe of what they could do. Oh yeah. I was just like, how on earth have you just done that? You just, just a bloody fantastic little animal, weren't you? To do it, to, to do that, it's amazing. <laughs> so my my story about the police dogs, and I absolutely adore police dogs, and I I take every opportunity, certainly when I was in uniform, to jump in the police van. Kevin Rowe was a dog handler, as we know we know. And there had been a church had been broken into in Molsham Street or around that area, New London Road, wherever, wherever it... New London Road. And I am the night duty DC, and I've gone in there, and all of a sudden, the, he comes in and says, Police dog, stand still. I'm like, oh, my God. And this dog just came rushing up and stopped. I mean, he would have just taken me out there. Um... Paul, before we end this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, alter, clarify, change? Uh, nah. It's all right, isn't it? It's all right. It's Mate, all right, isn't it? I, I am very grateful for your time. It was lovely. It's lovely to see you here today. 
Um, it goes without saying, if you need anything, you've just got to shout out. I appreciate it. Thank you, mate. All right, mate. Cheers, buddy. Thank you very much. Thank you.